Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching, help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. My name is Karen Fabian, and I am the founder of Bare Bones Yoga, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. This is episode 26. So first off, I want to start out by thanking you for listening. Over the past 11 months, so I'm almost up to a year of doing this podcast now, I've built up a community of podcast listeners, and while I am sure that many of you are also on my VIP mailing list, maybe follow my Instagram for anatomy lessons and belong to my anatomy Facebook group, to take the time to listen to the podcast is something for which I am really grateful. If you're liking this podcast and you know another yoga teacher, which if you're teaching, I'm sure you do please mention it to them so we can grow our community even more. Now, I want to give you a preview of what I'm working on and tell you how you can be part of it. I am updating my most comprehensive online course on anatomy. And in order to be one of the first to know when it goes live this summer, you must be on my VIP list. This means that when you download one of my teaching tools, like a guide or a list of tips or anything that I have to email you, you're on my VIP list. And that way, when I launch the new course and the offer that goes with it, you'll get an email about it. You won't have to worry about missing the post on social media This is why being on my VIP list is the best way to stay in touch about things I offer. Now, if you're out there thinking you'd never buy an online course to learn anatomy because you only learn anatomy in person, think again, my friend, think again. This way of learning is so effective and has so many advantages over in-person learning. Does it mean you never do another in-person workshop? Of course not. It simply means you're a a discriminatory buyer, meaning you're using your judgment, right? You're not just going with the flow of everybody else. You're a yoga teacher, you're a learner, and you know that in order to build your anatomy knowledge, you'll need to take advantage of lots of ways to do it. 
Now, I'm just going to briefly give you a few reasons why online learning is so helpful. The first one is you can learn on your time and at your pace. You don't have to rearrange your schedule. And I know this is always a challenge for me and some of my teacher friends. You see a workshop you want to go to. It's in another country or across the country. And you've got to figure out how you're going to sub out your classes and get the money and carve out time and board your pets and figure out where your kids are going to be so that you can go. With online learning, you can do it on your time and at your pace. You can re-refer back to anything you didn't understand the first time. How many times do you go to a training and then you go home and you're like, oh God, I have a question and I don't really think if I reach out to the teacher, they're going to answer or I wish I could look back. I'm looking back in the handout they gave and I, I just don't understand it. So with an online course, you don't have that problem. You can always refer back to the content and you'll have lifelong access to the information. It's much more cost-effective than traveling to every kind of training you might want to do. And with my programs, I add on a one-on-one -on -one coaching session component so that you will get even more one-on-one -on -one support than you'd get in a training. And we all know as teachers, these days, these in-person trainings are upwards of 50, 60, even 100 people. So that's it for now on this subject, but I just wanted to start to prime your thought process so that when I launch my new anatomy learning program this summer, you're on the list. And to help in that regard, today's episode has a free download with it. I'm going to go over it, make it come to life here on the podcast, and share the link at the end. Once you get it, it will make this episode complete and you'll be on the list. So bam, you get that whole thing all set. So today I'm going to go over a teaching topic around red flags that can arise when we're teaching. Now by a red flag, I mean something that from an alignment perspective might be unsafe or create a position for the student where it's hard for them to be steady in the pose. Now I'm not only going to review the red flag itself. I'm going to give you the anatomical reason behind each one so that you can have a complete picture. Now, why am I doing this? <laughs> because to know the red flag without the reason presents the same kind of half picture challenge that using cues without knowing the anatomy behind them does as well. It's just parroting words without having the knowledge. In order for us to teach with integrity and knowledge, we have to know the why rather than just be repeating what we hear, or dare I even say, making things up on the fly. It's not that we want to be incorrect or to mislead. Sometimes it's just in our effort to help that we say things that we're not 100% sure of. Now, let me add in a little caveat here. You may have heard other reasons why some of these things are red flags versus the reasons I'm gonna give you. In fact, you may not have thought that some of these things that I'm gonna share were red flags at all. So let me give you a little context, much of which I share as well when I teach my online anatomy program and do trainings in person. <laughs> there is not always one right answer. Now, I know you may be kind of chuckling as you listen to that, but it's the truth, right? There are many variables at play. We have to keep in mind that each person, each body is different. 
We also have to keep in mind that these red flags, while done once or twice, might not be an issue, but done repeatedly have a much greater, for sure, worse impact. Also, guess what? Surprise, there are different opinions out there. <laughs> so bottom line, if you wanna teach safe classes that are highly accessible, you'll consider these and all things do your own research to qualify them and make decisions about your teaching approach and in the context of the specific class you're teaching, right? So you're looking out there in the room and also making decisions on the fly based on who's there and what they're doing. So let's begin. Now again, to remind you, as I'm going through these, don't worry about taking notes because at the end, I'll share with you how to get a download with all this information so you can just listen right now, absorb, and then download and print it out at the end. So super easy. So let's begin. I'm going to go through the, the download itself, the, the guide, and it's called Five Alignment Red Flags to Watch For in Your Teaching Along with the Anatomical Rationale. So the first one, I want you to envision somebody in warrior one or warrior two, but you know, actually for this example, let's, let's stick to warrior one because I have a different red flag that addresses knee movement and it's more commonly seen in warrior two. So let's look at warrior one where, and again, to kind of give you a little lead in as to the distinction between that and warrior two, the, uh, the hips and the knee are both centered. They're both facing forward. So this first red flag has to do with the knee moving past the heel in poses where these joints should be stacked. So let's take a look at this. So the knee joint is the place where the four heads of the quadriceps muscle end. So your quadriceps muscle in the thigh, its primary responsibility is knee extension. And there are four components or four pieces, parts, four heads to the quadriceps muscle. And just as a little aside, um, all of them end on the knee via the patellar tendon. However, one of them begins on the hip. So that's the rectus femoris. And so that also acts as a hip flexor. All the other uh, heads of the quadriceps, um, medialis, lateralis, and intermedius, vastus, medialis, lateralis, and intermedius, all begin and end on the thigh itself, except for rectus femoris, which begins on the pelvis and ends on the knee. So that's a polyarticular muscle. It crosses two joints, hip and knee. Here we're looking at just this issue of insertion of the quadriceps via the patellar tendon on the knee. So imagine you have a student in warrior one and their knee is moving past their heel. Now, if you've never seen a picture of the quadriceps, imagine not just one muscle connecting to one part of the body, but essentially four, because there are four different heads of the quadriceps muscle itself, as I just described. So as the knee moves past the heel, if you imagine one of those old style clotheslines where there's kind of that pulley at the end and then the rope, the line itself, and imagine as 
the uh, rope goes past the pulley or around the pulley, the tension on the rope increases. So this is in a way, one of the uh, concerns about the knee moving past the heel is that the pressure on the kneecap itself, the patella, um, increases. And so here, what we want to do is protect the joints as we're practicing. We don't want to leverage the joints in a way that are going to create undue wear and tear. So the other factor outside of that is as the knee moves past the heel, the stability of the pose itself potentially, and this is again an experiential issue, meaning it's going to differ from person to person in terms of how it feels in their body. But when you stack the joints, the pose itself is more geared towards stability than when you move away from stacking the joints. And a really good example of that is plank versus down dog. If I'm in plank pose, my shoulders are stacked over my wrists. The focus there is very much on stability and strength. All I need to do is shift plank to down dog, and now I've changed the position of the joints. They're no longer aligned. Shoulders are no longer over wrists. Now shoulders are behind wrists, and therefore the, the emphasis now shifts a little bit more to flexibility, building length in muscles, right? Especially as you work down the kinetic chain, thinking about hamstrings focusing on length in the hamstrings much more than when you're in plank. And if you're unsure of that, just try it. Just shift from plank to down dog, plank to down dog, and see in your own body just the somatic sensations uh, and how they differ. So when we encourage students to keep knee over heel in warrior one or crescent lunge, right, or low lunge, um, we are creating helping them create a steadier shape. And so why does, that, why does that matter? Well, again, there are definitely some times in class where we want to emphasize flexibility over strength. And it's not to say at the cost of strength, right? There's always multiple dynamics happening in a pose at the same time. Um, but there are definitely postures that emphasize flexibility over strength. So when you take frog pose over plank or frog pose over crow. That's actually a better example because those two poses, crow and frog, have very similar shapes to them in terms of uh, the position of the joints and, and, and the position of the body. But in, my, in frog, I'm much more emphasizing inner thigh um, flexibility, where in crow, I'm focusing on balance building shoulder strength, building core awareness. So there's going to be different things I emphasize in every pose. So as I build postures where, where joints are stacked, in this example, knee over heel, I am emphasizing uh, steadiness. And when you think about the offering of warrior one in a practice, typically it's offered towards the beginning of the practice. When people are first getting onto their mats, when they're oftentimes not feeling connected to their body. And so that is the prime time to offer them something based on stability, because we want them to start to connect to their body. And a great way to do that is to connect 
to connect to their foundation, to uh, feelings of steadiness in their body. If you're into the energetic side of things, kind of that root chakra reference. So, so this is a, a good reason. And as, as you're teaching, you know, you're looking for different themes that you can emphasize. And one of the, you know, kind of skills of a masterful teacher is to be able to, is to be, a, I'm kind of laughing because this doesn't always happen, is to be able to match um, kind of the energy of a class with the pose offering. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, there can be kind of a mismatch and, and we can't always, we can actually never know exactly the energetic level of our students. But I think we can sometimes assume that there's just kind of a general ramp up, um, just as if you were to go out for a run a five mile run, you would start out feeling a little kind of out of sorts. And as you get into, you know, a mile or so, you find your rhythm. And as you're getting into the midpoint of the run, um, you're really in the flow and it is a lot easier to keep going than when you first began. And so the same thing happens in yoga practice. So if we're looking at kind of the energetic you know, you know, kind of flow of things, we want to start our classes out with things that are grounding to give people a chance to kind of literally get their legs underneath them, to come into their feet, to come into their foundation. So this whole idea of stacking knee over heel in any pose where um, that is part of the kind of true alignment, preferred alignment, we'd want to do that. So the next one is excessive movements of the spine. So just this general, um, this, this tip in general has to do with, as you're teaching, look for excessive movements through the spine. Depending on the pose, students may move through the spine in order to feel as if they're creating the fullest expression of the pose when in fact, it may be a compensation for another joint that is unable to move due to muscles that are tight. So look for excessive movement through the thoracic spine as they lift their arms up in crescent lunge, for excessive movement through the lumbar spine as they come into standing or low squat, or excessive movement through the cervical spine with no movement through the thoracic or lumbar in backbends on the belly. So if you kind of chunk that out into three parts. So look first for, uh, let's imagine someone in a crescent lunge or, you know what, even to begin, imagine your students, and I actually did this yesterday in class, in the very beginning, laying on their back, reaching their arms behind them and reaching their legs forward. Pretending they're standing on their feet, but they're laying on the ground, flexing the feet, pressing forward through the heels, reaching the arms back with their palms facing in. As they're there, notice the students who arch their back off the ground and cue them to draw the belly button in, just slightly softening uh, under the chest and slightly pressing the low back into the ground. Not excessively, because we don't want to do excessive movements, I don't think, in the spine. And keeping in mind, why might someone have that um, lordotic spine, that sway back, when they lay on the floor and, reach, and they reach their arms back? So if you're not familiar with um, or haven't thought about the impact of tight 
lats, latissimus dorsi, those, that muscle begins in the thoracolumbar fascia, so the lower back, and ends on the humerus. So, and it's kind of a fan-shaped muscle. If you kind of think of Michael Phelps, that kind of, you know, kind of have that, that V shape, if you look at him from the back uh, as a swimmer, obviously doing the butterfly stroke or all swimming strokes is a great way to build up your, your lats. So as someone with tight lats lays on the floor, reaches their arms back, if you can imagine almost like a dolman sleeve, I kind of think of it from like a fashion perspective, that line that runs from the low back up to the humerus is shortened. That muscle is tight. And so as they reach their arms above their head, something's got to give in the kinetic chain. And oftentimes what happens is the low back arches and that creates that caved in uh, sway back um, lordotic spine. And so to cue out of that, you would have them uh, potentially draw the belly button in so that's your Uddiyana Bandha. And that can start to create some stretch along that side body area there, uh, part of the lats. So again, you don't want to force people into something they're not ready for. In the lying on the back example, a good modification if uh, the Uddiyana is not working, is just to ask them to make their arms more of a V. If they reach their arms straight up in the air, that may require more flexibility, more length in the lats than, than is available to them. Have them take their arms into a V so that decreases the range of that muscle that's overly shortened. And then if you take that person on their back <clears throat> and you have them stand up in Crescent Lunge or Warrior, the same compensation may occur. They're reaching their arms up, which is the same as when they started and they were on the floor. Um, but now their relationship to gravity is different, but the same muscle uh, compensation is going to happen. I see this a lot in crescent lunge where the heel is up and it's a bit of a balancing pose. And so many times I'll see students arch their spine significantly in crescent lunge, and, um, and that will also uh, be remedied by having them draw the belly button in, and that begins to lift the front edge of the pelvis up a bit, levels the pelvis off, brings them out of that excessive movement in their spine, and creates more stability through the whole core. So that's kind of that first part. Now, the other uh, reference had to do with excessive movement through the lumbar spine as students come into a squat. So imagine now a student standing in mountain pose, pelvis is level, and then imagine you ask them to come into a standing squat. So not, uh, not malasana, not all the way down hovering uh, the hips from the ground, but just turning the toes out like a dancer and bending the knees and coming into a standing squat. And so you'll notice the difference when students stand on two feet with respect to their pelvis, having a level pelvis, and then as they bend the knees and take the knees out and drop the hips down, sometimes you'll notice, again, they'll come into that uh, sway back and the tailbone will hyperextend. And this came up recently in one of my Facebook uh, lives as a question I answered from a teacher who had asked this question in the group. 
And so this uh, issue is, again, a muscle compensation, and there can be lots of different reasons why the student compensates in this way. <clears throat> um, but if we kind of just stay true to this idea of, well, they're standing on their feet, their hips are level, the pelvis is level, I want to stay true to that as much as possible, even as I have them come into a squat. And this is one of the great ways that you can um, stay true to things like the alignment and anatomical position, i.e. mountain pose, even when you have students move into other positions. If there are some qualities of anatomical position that would make sense to maintain in the standing squat, in this case. And there is. We wouldn't want someone to come into a standing squat and be dumping forward, hunching over their pelvis, nor would we want them leaning way back. We'd want them to keep the, the alignment of anatomical position with respect to the pelvis. If you kind of use that metaphor of the pelvis like a bowl, you wouldn't want the water to spill forward or the water to spill back. And then in the last example, um, having to do with excessive movements through the cervical spine in uh, backbends on the belly, imagine somebody in, uh, on their belly coming into locust pose or bow and moving a lot through the neck without moving a lot um, through the thoracic spine. And this happens also in twists because the neck is much easier to move than the thoracic because the bones are smaller, the, the vertebrae are smaller. Um, and oftentimes in general, we all have much more mobility turning our head side to side and up and down than we do turning from the shoulders, turning from the rib cage, just because of the ribs being there, there's a lot more stiffness in the middle part of the spine. So as you have people on the belly and you bring them up into that first locust pose, if their chin is lifted way up, cue them to slightly drop the chin and to lift more from their shoulders. And you can even cue to draw the shoulder blades together, which will strengthen the muscles that are responsible for that, i.e. the rhomboids. And so this starts to strengthen muscles that are typically dull and weak and um, protect muscles that are overly, uh, overly used, like the neck extensors in yoga classes where people constantly lift the chin. <clears throat> so that's the second one. So the third one has to do with the knees again, like the first one. And the third one is excessive kneecap tracking, which takes the kneecap off center. So this is more imagining somebody in warrior two, unlike the first one, where we were talking about knee over heel. So in poses where the leg is either straight or bent, so obviously in warrior two it's bent, but you can even imagine in triangle, so there's your straight leg example, the position of the kneecap to be centered is critical in preventing wear and tear on the knee joint itself. One condition that can occur is called patellofemoral syndrome, which is considered to be from abnormal tracking of the patella within the area of the joint where it best lies. 
And so look for things like shifting of the kneecap off center, especially in twisting poses where the upper body is moving in one direction and the lower knee is trying to stay centered. So in both warrior two and triangle, we're rotating the torso to the side, but we're asking the knee to stay straight ahead. And what generally will happen is the knee will move in the direction of the torso because it's a lot smaller than the whole upper body. And so unless the student is aware, the knee is going to follow the movement of their torso. This is why, friends, this is why. Think about creating transitions in your classes where you're moving people from forward facing to side facing in the same beat. So warrior one to warrior two, crescent lunge to warrior two, you know, any of those kinds of things. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting you don't do it. I'm just saying it's really important that we understand the impact of taking people from one front-facing position to another side-facing position, we're asking them to process a lot more from an alignment perspective in order to stay safe. And again, you're gonna make your own decisions about how you wanna teach and what you wanna offer. What I'm going to throw out there is that I don't do it because the advantage does not outweigh the risk. It's not that important for me, nor is it necessary for me to take people from front-facing stuff to side-facing stuff. Uh, um, when both feet are down, that's the other part. When I'm locked to the ground and I make those changes, there's a lot more potential impact on the joints, the knees, because I'm locked to the ground. If I take somebody from airplane to half moon, my one foot's in the air. Now, some might say, yeah, but the impact is greater on the standing leg, which is the knee I'm worried about. Yeah, but now I have some freedom through the back leg. Again, remember what I said at the beginning of this episode. You have to look at what's happening in your class as you also process these guidelines I'm sharing. If I go into a class <clears throat> and I see there are a lot of people in these first couple of poses that are newer to, newer to yoga that have, um, and you can tell as you get more experienced, uh, a lack of awareness in their movement, proprioception, coordination, I'm going to cut back on my sequence. I'm not going to offer certain transitions because I can see that the students in front of me need more stability, more stable transitions. So it's up to you to decide what's best. Um, but this idea of keeping the knee, if you're in classes and you hear people say, or you come to my class and you hear me say, keep the knee centered, this is the uh, anatomic rationale behind it. So we've got two more. So this next one has to do with going beyond the available range of motion in a pose and sitting in the end range of a joint. So in each one of your students, you're going to find um, a different range of motion available to each of them in each pose. And as you offer poses that focus on lengthening muscles, students may be focused on stretching as much as possible, linking the idea of lengthened muscles to healthier muscles. And as a teacher, it's important you understand the role of muscles, the structure and composition, and how muscles function best, and know why overstretched muscles will be a detriment to a healthy body that moves with integrity. So help your students as you offer these kinds of poses to recognize where 
they have gone too far. They may feel a pull or tearing sensation where the muscle begins, known as the origin. They may see that they have difficulty keeping their foundation steady. They may need to collapse into the pose in order to maintain its shape. Your role is to help your students find better, healthier middle ground where they are lengthening the muscle safely. So if you think about um, a muscle like the hamstrings, you know, like we talked about the quadriceps having four parts, the hamstrings having three, uh, beginning all on the ischial tuberosities, the sitting bones ending on the knee, mainly responsible for bending of the knee and hip extension. So this muscle group is a good one to focus on for this conversation because the muscle shape is a straight line versus something like the lats I talked about earlier, which is more of like a fan-shaped muscle. So if I take a pose like down dog and I push and push and push and down dog, I'm definitely going to be emphasizing length of the hamstrings. But if I push too hard, I'm going to potentially create slight tears of the hamstrings from where it begins if the muscle is not able to keep up with the amount of force that I'm placing. Now, I don't want to get into this too much, but just to let you know, there are some safety mechanisms that the body in all its magnificence has built in. And so there are muscle receptors like the Golgi tendon organs that are um, in the body uh, and muscle spindles that respond to things like excessive stretch, excessive tension, and they actually create contractions in muscles to prevent the user, i.e. you, from pushing too hard. Although that doesn't always prevent these kind of minor tears that happen, again, remember what I said at the beginning, over time, right? So you have kind of the traumatic rupture that happens if you're running and you trip and you try to pull back. Your, your body just can't respond fast enough, you rupture your hamstring. Or certainly you've seen athletes just the other night <clears throat> um, in, in one of the basketball playoffs. Uh, I can't remember the player, Kevin Durant, maybe I can't remember, uh, Taurus Achilles, right? So these things happen in the moment, in the heat of the moment, in an acute situation, and the body just can't, can't prevent it. But things that we do over time, over time, over time can create these kind of micro tears. And you know, even without that being the end result, we want to try to emphasize the importance of integrity in the body versus that mindset that is kind of sort of promoted out there on social media. Um, and many students come to our classes with this mindset that I've got to be really super flexible. And so our teaching and how we teach and what we offer really can either <clears throat> support that mindset or give them other ideas to consider and feel the impact of in their body. Because remember friends, we're not just there kind of spouting off this anatomy information in, in the absence of how it feels in the student's body. Someone in class who's grown up with ballet, being a dancer all their life is gonna feel really different from someone who's in there who's you know done a lot of weightlifting and done a lot of sports where there's a lot of emphasis on muscle contraction. So you always have to kind of keep that in mind, of course. So a good example of this, you know, kind of going beyond the available range is when you bring students into a low lunge and you look out in the class and you see people just sitting in their joints, 
So sitting in the joints refers to not supporting the knee and the hip. Imagine someone has their right foot forward. They have a block on the inside of the front foot. They're turning the front foot out. They're moving into external rotation of that right hip. Their back leg is sunk to the ground. Their head is hanging down. It basically looks very, very unsupported. And it is unsupported, right? In order to stretch muscles in a healthy way, we want to support the body and support the muscle that we're focusing on with respect to lengthening it. We don't want to leverage the joints and just have people sitting in their joints in the hopes that they're going to stretch that way. And sometimes this comes from a lack of awareness, lack of awareness of how they're positioned, they're tuning out, they're not hearing what you're saying, or again, they may have that thought, I really have to stretch and this is a way to do it. So this is going to really require that you look at what's happening and that you give people cues um, to back them out of something where they've gone too far. And then this last one has to do with um, asking people to drop their shoulder blades when the shoulders are in flexion. And I've talked a lot about this because um, this is kind of a harder one for people to understand um, and does come up often in Facebook Lives that I do and comments on my um, social media pages, especially in my Bare Bones Yoga Anatomy work group. <clears throat> this question around what are the shoulders doing when the arms reach to the sky? So when the arms reach up, even though we often say in teaching, extend your arms up, which I don't say, but teachers will say, because it seems like that's the right action because we're reaching up that we would be extending the arms. But actually when we reach the arms up, the shoulders are in flexion. When we take the arms back like an airplane, the shoulders are in extension. But here we're talking about the shoulder joint, not the movement of the shoulder blades or the scapula, which move independent of the shoulder joint. I mean, of course they work in concert because it's part of the joint itself, but they have their own movements that are described differently than things like flexion and extension, abduction and adduction. So when we flex the shoulders, we're trying to move the head of the humerus past that far edge or chromium of the scapula. And we can only get the arm up so far before the scapula needs to swing out to the side or upwardly rotate so that the big head at the top of the humerus can clear that little ledge of the acromion and reach up. <clears throat> and so this is why if students are in warrior one, for instance, or chair, and you ask them to drop their shoulder blades, you're actually asking the scapula to no longer upwardly rotate, but to depress. When students hear, reach your arms up, drop your shoulder blades, which sometimes people actually teach in down dog, which in my opinion is a clear incorrect cue. Um, you're then starting to pull the head of the humerus out of the cup of the scapula, uh, the, uh, the cup of the joint, the, the glenoid fossa um, of the scapula. And so you're interfering with that joint congruence. We want people to have good connection or congruence at the, at the joint. And so that congruence comes from having, in this case, the head of the humerus into the glenoid fossa 
having that sit nicely there. So all the muscles of the rotator cuff and the tendons and ligaments of the shoulder joint itself can support that joint. In something like Warrior One, it's less of a concern because the arms are in the air. This is similar to that other example I gave when both feet are flat and we're taking people from Warrior One to Warrior Two or Crescent Lunge to Warrior Two. Um, but even though the arms are up in the air, the same kind of joint damage can occur if I ask people to drop the shoulders. I think this comes from a concern of looking at students with their arms up and that kind of scrunching along the side of the neck. That's natural. You know, again, these things all have to be moderated with what you see. These cues all have to be moderated with what you see happening. So if someone is reaching their arms up and they're really excessively doing it with a lot of vigor and just really, really reaching up, of course, you're going to say, hey, just soften the reach slightly versus drop the shoulders. And that's a really good example of how the words you use and how you use them can really impact what happens in your student. If I tell somebody to tuck their tail versus draw the belly button in, I'm going to get a much milder effect to cue to the front of the body versus if I say a word like tuck, which has a definite impact and people definitely know when they hear tuck the tail what to do. So that is our list. That's the whole thing. Those are the five points. And with that, we've reached the end of the podcast today. So I want to wrap up by telling you how to get this download. So the easiest way is to go to the website, barebonesyoga.com. The link to the podcast is right on the homepage. It's also in the dropdown. When you go to this episode, you're going to see the link. So super easy. That's the best, easiest way to do it. The other way you can do it is go to my Barebone Yoga Facebook page. I'll post something uh, when I post this episode. That is the link. And then I will give you the link itself. If you're unable to write it down, it's going to be kind of challenging to remember. But just for the heck of it, <laughs> I will read the link. So it's HTTPS colon backslash backslash. So that's kind of the precursor for secure links. Barebone Yoga dot lpages.co backslash five alignment red flags with hyphens in between backslash. So I don't expect you to know that. I'm just giving it to you if there are some folks out there who are, you know, comfortable writing down URLs, that's the URL. Um, the easiest way to get it is just go to my website, barebonesyoga.com. That's easy to remember. And the link to the podcast is right on the homepage. And, um, and then when you look at this episode, you'll see this download is right there. And like I said earlier, once you download this, I have to email it to you. So you have to give me your email. <clears throat> and I promise, of course, I will never share your email with anybody else. And you'll be on my VIP list. That means you'll be in the loop to be first notified not only about my new anatomy course that comes out this summer, but also every week I am providing emails with anatomy lessons and anatomy content. And even though I sometimes duplicate that content on my social media pages, the way these social networks are running these days, Facebook, Instagram, they're not sharing uh, business content with all people that are connected to pages. So the best way for you to stay in touch with me and to get this anatomy information is through your email. And I know people get a lot of email, 
But if you value this content and it's important in helping you on your journey as a yoga teacher, um, and I certainly know for myself, there are some teachers uh, that I follow on, by being on their list, and I love getting those emails, and it's a way for me to keep up with my learning. So I want to thank you so much for listening. Once you're done listening, will you please leave a comment? I would love to hear what you thought of this episode. Thank you so, so much for listening again and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Namaste.